The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about Menhaden, the fish, and the new documentary film, Shored Up. Uh, which features a Jersey Shore. And my guests today are Ben Kalina, is a producer of the new documentary about the survival of barrier beach islands on the Atlantic Shore titled Shored Up. Ben, hi. Hey, Rob. How are you? And also with me and starting off the program is Judd Crawford, Ph.D., and he is Science and Policy Manager, Northeast Fisheries Program, Environment Group. Judd Crawford has a doctorate in biological sciences from Cornell University and lectures on the intersection of policy and research at the Boston University Marine Program. Hello, Judd. Rob, great to be here. Well, thanks for taking time to come talk to us about Menhaden. Now, we all know about cod and mackerel and, um, you know, fish that we like to eat. We don't I don't, nobody that I know eats Menhaden, so why should we care about Menhaden? Oh, well, you should care about Menhaden because whether you know it or not, you're eating them one way or the other because Menhaden are a vital source of uh, food in the ecosystem that is consumed by all manner of animals, including codfish and tuna and the other larger predatory fish that uh, you enjoy eating so much. And some of it's even ground up and used as food for farm animals. So even when you're not thinking you're eating seafood, you may very well be eating some menhaden. And if you're not getting it there, well, you might be getting it when your doctor says to take uh, uh, omega-3s in your diet. Yes, I understand that that's a, a bait that's used for lobstermen to catch the lobster that I like to eat, too. Very important part of the, the bait market. Um, Menhaden are closely related to uh, herring. They're in the same general uh, family, and both are used as uh, a source of bait for the very uh, important New England lobster fishery. Yes, they're a very distinctive fish. They, um, although they're a little smaller than the, the herring we see around here in Massachusetts, at least, um, they. It looks like a third of their body is head, and it's all shiny, whereas the other two-thirds is scaly. That's right. They're, uh, they are a filter-feeding fish, uh, a lot like the great whales that we have that swim with um, their mouths open and have 
sieves in their mouths. In the case of menhaden, they're obviously much, much smaller, but they have the same general type of approach to getting food out of the ecosystem, and they strain very tiny, tiny plant-like single-celled uh, organisms, plants, and animals out of the water, uh, and they, in that way, they get their food and they, um, they serve as a really crucial link between the lowest level of the food web that is driven by the sunlight. Um, they link the energy that comes from the sun transformed into biological material food and, uh, and then turn it into, into fish that is the, the menhaden and the menhaden are then consumed in great quantities by, uh, by other animals and by people. So those are all piscivores that like to chew on the menhaden. That's right. Menhaden are, uh, just to say a little bit more about menhaden, in terms of their own feeding, uh, I mentioned that they feed on plant, plant-like parts of the, of the plankton, and there aren't very many fish in our region that are actually directly feeding on the on the organisms that photosynthesize or that capture the sunlight, but menhaden is one of them. Interesting. I happened to be down on the docks of Hyannis, Massachusetts, the end of September, and this fisherman had his boat tied up there, and he was walking the docks with a little net, and somehow he just flicked it over the side and pulled up about 20 menhaden. So there seemed to be quite a bit of menhaden in the sea. Why is there a concern? Well, you know, I always like to say that no, almost no matter what kind of fish you're talking about and how badly depleted it is or not, there are generally a lot of them where they are. But the, the issue is where they are no longer and, um, and the sizes of the schools and so on. If you're on top of a school of baby menhaden off, the, off Cape Cod, it may seem like there are a lot of them. But as far as we can tell from the available scientific information, over the last uh, 25 years or so, the population has plummeted to um, something like 10% of the historic high very fast. We're losing a, about 4.5 billion menhaden every decade or so in terms of population numbers. And um, so they, they may seem abundant in, in particular places, but their abundance is nothing compared to what it was uh, in the, in the mid-1950s. And although the ability to reconstruct the sort of historical ecology going back further is, is quite difficult and more work is needed, uh, people who, who are experts on, on historical ecologies uh, think that the population now is probably somewhere in the vicinity of 2% of what it was uh, historically when people began harvesting. Yeah, it's a real bummer that fish can't be like bison and buffalo out in the plains where we can just look out and see how many are there. But instead, we look at an ocean where we see nothing. And then when we get a glimpse of a few fish, you know, we think, wow, that's a big deal. There must be fish in the sea. Yeah. So one of the, one of the challenges, actually, that uh, modern fishery science faces with uh, trying to estimate how many fish there are for a, for a, a fish like Menhaden is that for species that form dense schools, it is uh, quite difficult to accurately estimate by sampling how many there are because you're either in a school and there seem to be zillions of them or you're, no, you're not in a school and there don't seem to be any. And so um, 
when you look, for example, at information that comes from fisheries and try to uh, get some sense of how many menhaden or herring there might be out there based on how many are being landed by the fishery, you can, cr- you can get a false impression that actually the abundance is relatively stable because the fishermen, one way or another, figure out where the menhaden or other schooling fish are, and they may, are able to, to keep up their landings even under circumstances when the abundance is actually declining. And that creates a, a sort of a, an illusion that the abundance is doing better than, than it actually is. Yeah, fishermen are very good at what they do, and they get better every decade with new technologies that... So more and more effort is resulting in about the same number of catches or something. That's right. Um, You know, fishermen are, as you say, they are very smart. There's a lot of local knowledge that they bring to bear just as they should. And um, it's up to science and management to make sure that they help the fishery to maintain its catch within bounds that will allow the fishery to persist on into the future. And in the case of Menhaden, it's very important to point out, as you already have, that we're not just talking about the, the abundance of Menhaden directly, but all the other things that depend on Menhaden. So when we make a decision about how much Menhaden we're going to take in, in any given year, we're also making decisions indirectly about how much food there's going to be out there for other fish and other fisheries and other industries, for example, uh, whale watching and other ecosystem-dependent industries are influenced by the availability of bait in the water. So despite the complaints, we have a good system of figuring this stuff out in that we have these fishery councils that are composed of the users of the resource, the fishermen, and the scientists and others who get together and look at it every single year. It's not something you can just cookbook and walk away from, is it? That's right. No, it's, uh, it's complicated stuff. It's not perfect, but we uh, in the northeast and along the eastern seaboard are, in a global sense, quite strong on fishery science. We have relatively good data. Not always, no one would say it's perfect, but quite good by comparison to many places. Um, and where we get into trouble is where we try, where we make decisions and um, lose, allow ourselves to make uh, decisions that are disconnected from the science and influenced by what are perceived as short-term benefits, um, which may or may not realize and certainly will cost us dearly in the future. Well, it's hard. I've been to those meetings and. They always want to have more science and more knowledge, and yet nature is inherently unpredictable, especially in the ocean where you're talking three dimensions and temporal shifts and all this stuff. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. Um, there are, there's a lot of variation in the natural world, and it's part of the way the natural world really is in the ocean and, and in other parts of, of the natural world. And one of the real struggles in trying to design a business plan and operate a business that's dependent on natural resource like menhaden or any of the other fish is that there's a lot of pressure to have a reliable stream of product. Um, But we do need to move to a mode of fishing where the amount of fishing that we do is not driven by 
a, uh, a concern about having a steady stream of product, but has to be driven by the availability and the, and the ability of the population to sustain harvest. And we, that is something that we are very poor at doing now. Um, fishermen need to be able to, I think in, fu- in the future, we need to move to a system where fishermen can harvest appropriately when the stocks are strong and then shift to other stocks when stocks are weak. But that's very right, so we want sustainable do. fisheries. That's right, we want sustainable fisheries. And um, we just have a couple minutes left, but um, what should people do if they care about Menhaden? Well, if people care about Menhaden, uh, the most immediate thing they can do is focus in on what's going on in the way of decision-making right now coming up for a meeting in November, and they can, if they're interested in in that, they can go to a a website called www.pewenvironmentgroup.org and look under campaigns there, and they'll find a, a link to a campaign about Menhaden, and they can get some additional information about uh, Menhaden and even have the opportunity to sign on to a petition to support making uh, good decisions during the November meeting of the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission about how to set the limits on catch for Menhaden. Yeah, I can't emphasize enough how much it means to the fisheries commissioners to hear from people about what they're concerned about and what they want, because they're there juggling, you know, a little more caution, a little more profit, what's it going to be, and it really helps to have input from everybody who cares. Absolutely. It's, a, it's essential. They're, uh, most of them are, are, or all of them really are there um, uh, representing elected officials who are supposed to be rec- representing their constituents in the state, and they need to know what people's views are on, uh, on their decision-making. And, and this message is very important because the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission has taken the historic first step to restore the Manhattan population by laying out a plan that could significantly increase the number that are left in the ocean and take into account the needs of their predators. So it's very important that when they're going in the right direction that we go to uh, pewenvironment.org and um, sign the petition and encourage them to keep going in the right way. Judd, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to us about Menhaden. Thanks so much, Rob. It was a pleasure to talk with you. When we come back, we'll talk with Ben Kalina about Shored Up. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and 
ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back with Ben Kalina, and he is producer of a new documentary about the survival of barrier beach islands on the Atlantic shore. It's titled Shore Up. And Ben is a Vermont native. He was assistant producer of a documentary called A Sea Change, which is about the devastating effects of ocean acidification. And I've worked with Ben in getting uh, the Sea Change film out and around and seen by people it's an important thing, but it's very exciting now to have Ben um, come back with his own film that he's done from soup to nuts, and uh, we hope. And <laughs> Ben, I've seen the trailer, and this film strikes me as all about collisions, storms hitting barrier beaches, and how people manage to continue to surf and live on the edge between sea, surf, and shore. How did you come up? How did you come to film uh, Short Up? Well, thanks for having me on, Rob. Um, you know, it's, I guess it was a little bit of a roundabout approach that I took to short up in, in that I'd, I'd been reading uh, John McPhee's work a bit, and in particular, book Control of Nature. And, you know, as, as I was reading that and looking in particular the, at the story about the Mississippi River and the Atchafalaya and, you know, how the Army Corps and, and all of us really have been working to keep, to contain the Mississippi and keep it one place, I got more and more interested in this idea of engineering and, and landscapes and erosion and, you know, being in Philadelphia, uh, I'm kind of far from the Mississippi River and I was, you know, looking for, you know, stories that crossed my radar that might be interesting in terms of, you know, some, some parallels to the Mississippi and, and erosion and, and the sort of idea of the control of nature. And I read an article a couple of years ago in the New York Times that was actually a year or two old even at that point, but it was about uh, Long Beach Island and, and the Jersey Shore in general and in Long Beach Island in particular along with Monmouth County, which is a bit north of it, and, and how, you know, there, there was this ongoing sort of conflict, like you suggested, or collision between surfing community um, and between the Army Corps. And in really what, what goes on there is, is that, you know, the Army Corps has a pretty, pretty significant and almost comprehensive program for beach replenishment and coastal management in the state of New Jersey. And, uh, you know, they have basically a 50-year plan that involves replenishing essentially the entire coast of New Jersey. And when beach replenishment comes to town, oftentimes uh, it buries the seafloor and reshapes the seafloor and, and 
has some pretty you know dramatic immediate effects on surfing and recreation. Uh, and there's there's a number of different ways that it impacts recreation, including uh, more dangerous uh, swimming conditions, especially for littler people. And you know, it just it has a it, it has it's a major facelift for the coast, um, and it's pretty expensive. And so you know, the surf community, which um, isn't always super politically active, uh, but at times is, and, and there are certainly lots of people in the surf community who are concerned about everything from conservation and uh, you know beach maintenance and cleanliness to you know bigger, more specific issues around uh, surfing, they're, they're kind of up in arms in Monmouth County where there was a major replenishment that buried what used to be some pretty, uh, you know, well-known and, and definitely well-traveled surf breaks. And those haven't, still really haven't come back yet. This is, I believe, almost 10 years ago now. And it sort of became, um, you know, a, a, major, a major sticking point for people in, in the surf community who are concerned about their surfing because... You know, that's something that draws a lot of people, not a huge percentage of the coast, but a lot of people to the coast and keeps them there. And it's something with a long tradition. And uh, and it is disrupted. And while that's not the most uh, critical central issue in the film, it, it's an interesting way into it because uh, the well, storms... Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah. The So overall, the Army Corps is... Are they staying... Are they winning the battle or are they losing... Are, are homeowners being more threatened than ever before? Uh, so are they winning the battle against erosion? Is that the question? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's a case-by-case basis. I mean, I think, you know, you can look at it in a lot of different perspectives. And, you know, and I try to do that in the film, look at it both on a short-term perspective and then on a longer-term perspective. And, you know, in the short term, yeah, you know, these, these projects um, can definitely preserve property. And uh, they can, you know, as, I, as the film says, shore up the beaches. Uh, and these barrier islands, uh, and and they can do it pretty effectively as long as you're willing to spend the money and uh, continue to do the beach replenishment. Uh, but you know, there's a bigger picture issue here, which is you know beyond the say you know the, the three to five year plan or even the ten or twenty year plan, which is that you know the seas are rising, oceans are rising. Um, they've been rising since the last ice age, and, and they're continuing to rise, and they're going to accelerate. They are accelerating, um, you know, due to climate change and global warming and expansion of thermal expansion. And, you know, when you start looking out a few years, you realize that this is really a, a, a very dangerous gambit, uh, this idea that we can, you know, preserve these low-lying barrier islands in particular and low-lying coastal areas with, uh, with sand, which is a limited finite resource and, and which is getting more and more expensive. And I think we all know what's going on with the federal budget deficit and some of these, you know, federal programs That's related to it. It's a very dynamic shoreline that is constantly in motion. Exactly. And... But it's going to be a tough battle if you're pitting surfers against the landowners. You know, yep. it's, it's too bad there isn't some way that uh, the surfers can have the barrier, the places that have been replenished badly or too much to the to the hurting of the surfers. There isn't some way to address that that doesn't require the homeowners to give up their homes because of the beach disappearing. Right. Well, and, and a lot of you know a lot of these folks who are surfers are homeowners too. Um, not always necessarily... Right. You don't want to make them draw sides, though. Is there some way to avoid um, the drawing of such, you know, differences between them? Like, Well, there, there, there are other... There are alternatives, some alternatives, as far as beach engineering goes. And, and I should say I'm not, a, I'm not an engineer, I'm not, and I'm not a scientist. Um, so I'm not, I can't speak to the efficacy of every one of them. But there are 
options that are available with sand bypass systems that are not as uh, you know expensive or destructive. They work under certain conditions. Right. Um, you know, and there are living shorelines, which are ways of you know building resiliency into coastal areas, uh, so that you know they have you know I think you saw in for instance in uh, Lake Pontchartrain what happened when you know there there basically all the uh, foliage that was down there had been cut down over the years, and there's basically nothing stopping the storm surge when it came across Lake Pontchartrain to New Orleans. And, you know, these barrier islands are right. not the same in terms of the foliage, in, in terms of you know, living shorelines, but there certainly are a, a number of different things that you can do to try to build flexibility and resiliency into these places. And, and the truth is also that there, there are certain areas that are real hot zones for erosion um, where, you know, homes built right on the edge of the ocean you know, you, at a certain point, you have to you have to kind of wonder or question how viable they are long term. Um, and that's not well. Some dynamic barrier beaches, I imagine. Well, I guess not. I would imagine that yeah, as the beaches change, the surfers would find different parts of the beach that have the conditions they want. You know, the right pitch and slope and so forth. But a lot of the famous surfings, like Mavericks and stuff, is around rocky headlands and 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 you know clear breaks like that. So that if the Army Corps were to mess up a specific site, uh, the only way to fix it is to dredge out what they put in, I guess. Yeah, and, and you know, I think it really is one of those case-by-case situations. And, you know, I think that's why, you know, the Army Corps and, and, and the surf community and other, and other communities need to work together on these projects to kind of evaluate instead of just laying down a carpet of sand evenly everywhere, as I think some people... Uh, are concerned that a lot of people are concerned that that's what happens. The Army Corps comes in and has a sort of one size fits all program, and whether or not that's true, I mean, if the more there's a conversation where you can alter, modify, or adapt these projects to you know, different locations and different regional, uh, you know, vari- variables, then you hopefully we get a better result. Um, there's a couple well, yeah, it's like managing fish populations. It's nature is more complicated than we'd like. We wish there was a widget factory and we can just make some adjustments here and there and change production. But, you know, we, we have to uh, embrace the complexity of things and then figure out more robust solutions that are really specific to each situation. So the way they handle Menhaden is different than the way they're going to handle Herring. Uh, and the, 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 the specifics of, you know, the shore of the Jersey Shore there in the, on Long Beach Island um, – may be unique, but it, it probably requires, you know, uh, you know, a, a more, uh, I don't know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think, you know, that's, that's, that's what I'm trying to get at with the film is, is essentially... Excellent. There's something here that we need to, we need to have, a, it, it's a complicated issue, it really is, and, and there isn't, I know, I wish there was a simple solution for it. I mean, you know, the simplest solution is pick up everyone's home and move them back a few miles, but obviously that's, that's not really a solution, so... In, in in lieu of that, the question is, is this something that's affordable going forward, and is it effective? And if either of those answers is no, then, you know, and, or, you know, is it worth the consequences? And if, if the answer is no, then what are the alternatives? You know, and, right. And, and you almost end up having to take sides of who's going to be more hurt than the other or something. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's, un- it's not a, you know, it's not necessarily a happy, happy scenario, but, you know, it's definitely... One that's better, I think, to think about in advance rather than, you know, after a storm. Um, Because I was on Long Beach Island for Hurricane Irene 
uh, you know, waiting to see what would happen there because it was the first storm that made hurricane that made direct landfall in uh, in you know New Jersey in almost 100 years, and um, you know it, it was it was unclear what was going to happen, but it was what was clear was that it, you know the potential was there for it to be pretty devastating, and I don't think anyone really wants that. So you said you were there on the beach or in the area? Yeah, I actually went on with a, a friend of mine, a photographer. Uh, Dave Myletti from the Daily Philadelphia Daily News. We we ended up just driving onto the island and riding out the storm there. Um, you know, mostly. Well, tell mostly, us more. What was it like? Well, you know, it was it was interesting. It was uh, you know, it was a mandatory evacuation up and down the coast of New Jersey, uh, as in you know a lot of the eastern seaboard, uh, and you know, they they evacuated Atlantic City, which you can see from the southern tip of Long Beach Island, and yeah, you know, there there were definitely still people there. There there was. Had this sort of collection of, you know, the the hardcore folks who weren't going anywhere and you know, didn't didn't see the need either. They weren't concerned or scared or you know they were just uh, you know they they just weren't going to go. So um, they had nothing to, felt they had nothing to lose. And um, you know we were we were there and, and we were staying actually at the uh, New Jersey um, uh, Maritime Museum, which is owned by one of the folks who's in Short Up at Whitcraft. Sort of a it's a museum that pays homage to the maritime history of New Jersey and diving in particular and shipwrecks and it's kind of a eerie place to be and waiting for a major hurricane to come. It's a uh, you know ten thousand square feet of display space, floor to ceiling, literally with photographs of shipwrecks and you know here we oh, were. Oh great! <laughs> you're sleeping on the floor, and, you know, really not sure what was going to happen. I mean, you know, these, and you're looking at a shipwreck on the inside. That's pretty good. Yeah, we felt like we were going down with the ship if that's what was going to happen. And, uh, you know, she's pretty tough cookie. She's one of the, uh, you know, emergency responders on the island. And those are most of the, a lot of the folks who were left were emergency personnel and volunteer emergency personnel. And, you know, she drives an uh, ambulance. And they actually took all the ambulances and fire trucks off the island because what happens even when there's just a good nor'easter is that about half the island or good parts of it are underwater. And it's salt water, of course, and that's not good for. Right. Ben, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with Ben Kalina after the break. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization 
organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with film producer Ben Kalina. Ben, uh, where can people learn more about your new film, your documentary, Shored Up? Well, the, the best place to start is on our website, which is shoredupmovie.com. S-H-O-R-E-D-U-P movie.com. And uh, you can get a bit of background about the film there, and you also can get links to our Facebook page, which is very active, and um, this has lots of articles about erosion and beach replenishment from around the world and um, you know, just a lot of more information about that and also a link to our Kickstarter campaign which just launched this morning uh, and which is one of the ways that we're uh, raising money from the film this time directly from people who are interested in the subject and want to you know, be a part of the film, contribute, pre-buy a DVD. We've got a lot of really cool incentives for, for support there including all kinds of ocean-related stuff like everything from beach glass jewelry from New Jersey made by one of the folks in the film to photographs of the Jersey Shore and uh, made by, shot by the wife of someone in the film and wetsuits. And we actually even offer uh, your own personal beach replenishment uh, at, the, at, the, at the highest incentive level. So if you want to get your... Is that your, a bulldozer, like the picture? We're going to, well, we'll bring a dump truck. And I'll oh, with you won't let me drive a bulldozer or anything. No, well, if you own a bulldozer and you, you have the permits for it, you can do anything you want. <laughs> you can move it out. I'm looking at your Facebook page. Are you the guy in the blue slicker that's squatting in the water taking photographs? That's me. Okay, if people want to see Ben, go to, uh, what is it, Short Up on yep. Facebook, and um, you'll see Ben outstanding in his field with the water up around his ankles. Yep, that was from Long Beach Island during Hyrene right there. <laughs> yeah, oh. about as high as it got. Okay, so there we were. We were left in this historic building with shipwreck exhibits all around you and the wind howling of the hurricane or whatever it was, Storm Irene, blowing away. So I trust you got outside after the storm, and did you see some impacts of the storm? Yeah, I mean, we did, we did see some impacts. Um, you know, we drove around, and, uh, you know, there was overwash in some places where, you know, the storm surge comes over the beach berm on the, on the shore side, and Actually, one of the like sort of untold pieces of this of this whole story or this picture about these barrier islands in particular is that you know the storm surge is bad, and those are the times when you can get devastating cut throughs on islands like uh, like in uh, 1962 in, in Long Beach Island where they had three cut throughs uh, from just a nor'easter. But you know, really, oh. the, the chronic problem is is flooding from the bayside um, because you know sea level is rising and, and rises about two millimeters a year. Uh, which doesn't sound like a lot, but with that combined with the fact that on the on the Atlantic coast the the plates, the tectonic plates are, are sinking at about two milliliters a year. You get four a year, which is twelve to eighteen inches a century, and you know that's a, 
sizable amount of sinkage, plus these islands are just you know kind of sinking a bit under the weight of of, of us. Um, and you know you end up with chronic flooding, and, and so you know which is getting worse. And so when you get a good storm and it fills up the bay like a like a bathtub, you know you get a couple of storm cycles, a couple of moon cycles, and you get some real serious flooding. And luckily that wasn't really terrible. wasn't wasn't at peak moon cycle time when we were there for Irene, which would have caused a lot more flooding. But uh, you know there there was some damage. There was some wash through. The wind did some damage. But uh, you know, overall, it turned out to be. It was, I think, it was a tropical storm, or maybe a Category One when it hit, and it turned out to be a pretty mild event as far as the island goes. There's been I have a bunch of footage in the film from 1992, which was just a nor'easter, which was uh, you know much more significant flooding on the island and washthroughs. Um, so, you know, there's, but even though it was smaller, it still left an impact. On it the did community. leave an impact, absolutely, and and you know the. Part of what's interesting about Long Beach Island as well is that uh, the southern tip of the island is three miles long, and um, it's called Whole Gate, and it's part of the Forsyth Wildlife Refuge. And so it's a, it's a national uh, wildlife refuge, and so you know you can't build at all or develop on these, in these areas, which means you also can't do beach replenishment. And so you know in the film, I've got some great shots, some aerial shots in particular, looking north up the island, and you can see that Whole Gate itself is migrating westward, which is what you know, barrier islands on the Atlantic coast do. They, they wash over and they move towards land, and then eventually they, they tend to sink and disappear, and, and then a new, a new barrier will often take its place, um, you know, given, given nature taking its own course. But um, because the rest of Long Beach Island is being replenished and then on the shore side and bulkheaded on the bay side, the rest of uh, the island is basically staying in place while Holgate continues to its thing and move towards the land. And so, you know, this island, this part of the island is what is really at risk right now because there's washovers that, uh, you know, it's just going to take one serious storm and everyone thought Irene was going to be it to cut the whole gate off from the rest of Long Beach Island, Um, which is, you know, there's no homes on it, but a lot of people use it for recreational purposes. Uh, They drive, you can drive on it a lot of the year, a lot of fishing down there. Um, It's just a beautiful place. And so, it's it's an interesting kind of side note in the story, and it's you know it really brings this question again back to what it is it that we value here. You know, um, is it worth replenishing a place where a lot of people want to replenish around Holgate to keep it in place? And you know, it's really a, a, just an interesting question. I think you know what is it that we are you know wanting to preserve? Is it the experience of a wild place? Is it the actual wild place? Is it um, you know is it what kind of connection to nature are we looking for? And that. Yeah, it's a tough question, and it's two levels. One is what do we want to preserve, and the other is what can we preserve, and what is will nature take no matter what. So the barrier beach of Massachusetts is the Cape Cod, you know, national seashore out on the Cape there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Henry Beston sat out there at his house and wrote wonderful stuff, and about 10 years ago the ocean took away Henry Beston's house because it was on that dynamic beach that got eroded away. And even though it was a historic site and all, it didn't matter, you know, they, they couldn't they couldn't stop it. I suppose they could have, but they made the decision not to totally, you know, fortress the, the, that section of the island and all that to, to stop it. Right. And then the Cape Cod National Seashore, to the south of that is Monomoy Island, and Monomoy Island extends out from the, you know, the, the bend of Cape Cod there, due south, uh, just to, to the side of Nantucket. 
and it uh, is a national wildlife refuge. And it turns out that the Cape Cod National Seashore is determining their boundaries by uh, where the sea is, and Monomoy National Wildlife Refuge is determining it by um, uh, coordinates, you know, longitude and latitude. And as the sands change, the uh, park has slipped onto Monomoy National Park because they're a national wildlife refuge. The national park now overlaps with a portion of the wildlife refuge because they're using different methods of measuring their domains. And what this means is that the wildlife refuge, their first priority is to manage for preserving the wildlife. And the Park Service's first priority, well, they have a mutual one of that of being public access and then also preservation. So now the clamors were not allowed to go to Monomoy National Wildlife Refuge can go clamming on Monomoy land because it's within the national park. Mm. How about that? <laughs> it's wild, yeah. I mean, it's all it's about... It's wild. You know, yeah, so, the, the... Tell us a bit about um, what's happening up with Long Beach, New York, not to be confused with Long Beach Island, New Jersey. Yeah, it is a little confusing, uh, and, and not to be confused with Long Beach in California. Um, but in in Long Beach, uh, we went up there and did a bit of filming in September at the Quicksilver Pro uh, surf, uh, surf Tour event, which is sort of a monumental moment for the East Coast and the U.S. and the surfing community, at least, because uh, it was the first time that they've had uh, a major world, world tour event. And it was happened to be on a beach in Long Beach, which is a kind of a subculture, has a strong subculture and, and tradition of surfing, winter surfing, and some summer surfing, too. Um, there's this long culture that goes back there, and about, I believe it was 2004, uh, the Army Corps um, decided to do some a replenishment project, uh, and it wasn't really, I think it wasn't really clear what the f- purpose of that project was. There was uh, plenty of, according to folks there, there was plenty of sand in the system. Um, it's an area that wasn't eroding. Uh, it was actually accreting, uh, and basically it just was, it, it became clear that it was a, a project, uh, most likely for the sake of doing a project, and so... Uh, so you know there there was there was some local support and and pretty critical local support to to question and then eventually to fight it and Surfrider helped get involved and helped organize and and educate people the Surfrider Foundation and uh, you know ultimately they were able to convince enough people uh, at the political level local political level that it wasn't a worthwhile project and they abandoned it and um, you know it's not clear what the impact of that project would have been but. Given other projects, um, it's quite possible that it would have buried, you know, changed significantly the surf break there, which would have meant no surf competition. And, uh, you know, this competition had a million dollars in purse and prize money and, you know, it was a major sporting event. And, you know, it was really good for the community there in general, I think. Um, yes, so, absolutely. You know, just on an economic, surely on an economic level, that would have been, a, a you know, a bummer, on a cultural level, a bummer. And, you know, well, I don't want to reduce all this to economics by any means. You know, it, it does kind of point to some of the local political issues that come up um, with these projects. And so, you know, I think I, I'm actually going to be speaking with the woman who's in head of, the head of the climate change program at the Army Corps in the, for the film. Um, we haven't interviewed her yet, but I, I've spoken with her quite a bit. And you know, I think there's just some 
very interesting conversations about what happens between the time that the Army Corps sets their own priorities and then what happens uh, when it gets down to a local political level because um, you know, the Army Corps is aware of a lot of the issues related to sea level rise and, and their game planning for that and trying to figure out which projects to recommend in the future and different climate change scenarios. But, uh, you know, when it gets down to it, it's local political pressure that drives these projects. And so, you know, all the best planning and the best ideas in the room don't necessarily make it to the, you know, to the drawing board here. They, they end up um, falling victim sometimes. Better planning falls victim to, you know, emergency responses after storms. And, and also just this, this idea that beach replenishment is the only, is the only way forward. Um, so, you well, know, Long Beach was an example of that. It's a good contrast between uh, the New Jersey Beach and then Long Beach, New York, is a city with a population of 33,000 people that all want to live on the beach. And they're going to have much, you know, a city with 33,000 is going to have a much greater political clout and a hand on uh, a government agency like the Army Corps than could the surfers ever have. Right. Right. And, you know, you know I'm not sure what all the dynamics of who is, who is for and against it, but... Uh... You know, at, at least in that in that moment, you know, people kind of looked at it, questioned it, and, and the democratic process took its course, and they decided not to do it. Um, and there's, uh, you know, there, when you when you're in Long Beach, you, you know, it's very different than Long Beach Island. It's you know, ten, twelve story apartment buildings, you know, right on the beach, right in front of the water, and you know, it's not Miami, um, which is you know, thirty, forty, fifty story. High rises right on the water, but uh, you know they're 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 definitely on the edge. So there's a, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of concern there too. Yeah, um, there's a lot of concern. And there was a good film about the surfers of, I think Long Beach, New York, where the surfers are riding the subway to get out there and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm sure that that makes sense. It's real close to New York City. It's amazingly close to New York City. It's like well, it's just funny to see New Yorkers carrying a surfboard on the subway system and. Yeah, you know, putting on thirty-seven wetsuits to go out in the winter time to surf yep. there. That's love. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's you know that's kind of what I'm trying to get at in the film too. Is just that, you know I'm not you know I, I've been going to the beach since I was a kid and I love the beach. Ben, Ben, we're gonna have to interrupt you for take a break and then we're gonna hear from Ben uh, uh, Kalina about going to the beach as a kid after you. <laughs> We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of 
Eco Stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about the new documentary film, Shored Up. And if you'd like to know more about the film, uh, best to go to shoredupmovie.com, Ben? Yep, dot com. And Ben was just telling us about uh, Long Beach, New York, which is just at the very end of the... Um, the very end of Long Island, and it's right across pretty much the bottom of New York City, and how that uh, the Army Corps was then to replenish, to do beach replenishment, beach renourishment, dumping a bunch of sand where the surfers didn't want it to go, and, uh, and people spoke out, and for whatever reason, the Army Corps didn't uh, do that, rest, that replenishment program on that piece of Long Beach, New York. And this is, isn't this a theme in your movie as well, isn't it, to, uh, to learn your beaches and then speak out? Yeah, it's, just, it's to say that, you know, there isn't really, that, that there isn't a one-size-fits-all project here, um, and that, you know, at times beach replenishment um, may be really important for certain places, uh, and that it's also something that needs to be done within the context, the greater context of thinking about coastlines and really thinking about, you know, big picture of what we want our shore to look like and how we're going to get there. Uh, so people should really, you know, be actively involved and not just letting these things happen in the background because, um, you know, we, we, need to, we need to make the complicated choices. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the simple ones are um, really expensive and not always effective. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's about encouraging people to take, a, to take a stand of sorts or at least to get educated and get involved about these things, especially if you live in coastal communities. And in, in long right. run, yeah. yeah, you really need to pay attention. And you know, our tendency is not to stand up against City Hall or big government, but um, it's more. But if you know the area that is threatened, you know, big government, or in this case, the Army Corps of Engineers, they need to hear that, that what they've done elsewhere is going to have this effect on you when it's done to your place. And so it's important not to just dismiss all government as nonsense, but to be listening to what's coming up. And then there's an opportunity to, to speak out on that. And if you, if you miss the opportunity, it gets so much harder. So it's really important to, uh, 
when you go into a landscape is go in eyes open and then um, check back with the politics so that uh, you can speak from the ground, from the place. Yeah, exactly. It's very important. And, you know, I think, you know, the, the film is is about a, a, a pretty significant and specific series of, of actual actions that are being taken with beach replenishment um, and coastal management. But it's also just, you know, it is about this bigger picture of, you know, we've, we have had a very significant movement, migration of people to our coastlines. It's uh, roughly 30% more of us in our coastal communities now than in 1970. And, you know, there's, there, that just means that there's an enormous amount of pressure in these places from population, and it also means that, you know, we're, we put ourselves in a situation, whether we realize it or not, that's a um, you know, precarious spot. And so it's just, I, I think I'm just, you know, want to make sure that we are thinking about those things and being active in our local politics, uh, because that's where a lot of these decisions get made is on a local level. Um, and so, you know, with, these, with all these projects, they get, you know, mayors are in charge for the most part of deciding which projects happen. So, you know, I think that people actually can be pretty involved and, you know, can take action. Yeah, and it's 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 for the better, I believe, to have more people engaged in a landscape because then you have, as you did in Long Island, uh, New York, you have more people speaking out for the right kinds of stewardship management programs. That's so right. it, the solution isn't just to move everybody off the land and you know let it be all by itself, but you need to have active stewardship, and the more stewards, the better off the uh, the land might be over time. Absolutely. Because beach replenishment is just about one particular, you know, aspect of this, of, of coastal living and coastal management. There's a lot of other areas of stewardship, like you're suggesting, that are really important as well. And so, you know, the more, yeah. like, the more people pour themselves into it, the more they'll find other areas that they can also make a difference in. Um, right. And, and the more we get people together, the smarter municipal systems get about pollution and sewage treatment and all those things um, can, you know, they can lessen the per-person footprint that is harming the environment by, by just being smart. And sometimes it requires capacity to be less damaging, and that happens when places grow, too. So yep. um, I'm all for growth, I, I'm, but I'm for, you know, savvy residents who watch their own community and remind big government that, uh, yeah, that may be the, the regular way of doing things, but in this case, uh, we're special. Right. Uh, yep. it, when do you think the movie will be out? Well, I'm hoping it's going to be out uh, next summer, in time for the next. That'd be great. Season. So you know, we're 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 re- working on fundraising right now, and then we're going to be working on editing shortly thereafter. And uh, you know, we're we're working also with Short uh, Surf Rider Foundation and um, with American Littoral Society and with your Ocean River Institute and others to get the word out. And then when the film's finished, you know, hopefully to host some screenings and just encourage people to, you know, to get, get active and, and get out there and, you know, be a part of the sort of long-term health of their communities. Um, I know I, I didn't grow up on the beach. I grew up in the mountains, but I've always gone to the beach, you know, as a kid. We used to go to all different kinds of beaches and coastal areas, and there's really something just intangible and wonderful about beaches and coastline, and that's why we all want to live there. And so, you know, I think we want to do the, our best to, to uh, not only preserve what's there as it is right now, because it's in constant motion, but, you know, preserve an experience of the shore that uh, we can pass on. 
Yes, they've done surveys, and the number one thing that brings people to the ocean, the number one reason why people care about the ocean, are going to beaches. I think seafood comes in second. Going to beaches is way up there. Yeah. And we need to remind the managers and the residents of beaches that there is a whole nation of Americans that want the possibility to go to a clean beach someday with their children or grandchildren, and they are counting on local managers, local residents, to keep the beaches, you know, healthy and clean so that the legacy of, you know, what the pilgrims first stepped onto can happen again. Absolutely. Yep. And, you know, it's it's really gets down to a very personal level because, you know, beach replenished beaches are, are, are not the beaches that of your grandpa or your grandma, you know. They're different beaches, and, and it's not to say that they're bad beaches, but they're different and uh, you know, so it is. It, 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 it's just a, a subtle thing that happens along the line of, of uh, development, but you know, it's, it's something that. We and that's the conundrum of the film: is how do you keep what you love without altering it beyond recognition? That's right. Yep, that's exactly what, what the film is about. Okay. And, and um, I, I can have an answer to that question by the end of the film, but <laughs> that's probably one to go home with and. and for people to think about themselves. It's a constant tension. It's, you know, every single time the beach is to be replenished and where to be replenished and when to be replenished, each one of those issues has to be decided on a case-by-case basis. Because as you said, if you do it wrong um, or if it isn't done thoughtfully, it's going to displace surfers or it's going to displace clamors or it's going to displace nesting shorebirds or all these different factors have to be put into it. That's right. Ben, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us about your new film, Shored Up. Absolutely. Thanks for talking with me, Rob. And um, I urge people to uh, visit uh, Ben's website at shoredupmovie.com and also go to the Facebook page. It's just great, all the stuff happening on the Facebook page. And and Ben is still, you know, putting the finishing touches on, so this is a good time to engage him in conversation on on either his website or the Facebook page. Ben, thanks a lot. Absolutely. Thanks, Rob. Until next time, thank you for listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogue. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then. (laughs) 